Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight it is May 8th of 2014, and tonight our guest is Helen Redmond. Um, she's written a lot of articles about harm reduction, addiction, various topics. Tonight we're going to talk about her article about uh, schizophrenia, mental illness, uh, nicotine, how nicotine can relieve symptoms of mental illness, and how e-cigarettes might be just a good delivery system for doing that. Uh, Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Helen Redmond, is with us right now. We're going to bring her on. Well, it's great to have you here this evening, Helen. Nice to be with you, Ken. Well, tell us a little bit about your article that you wrote about electronic cigarettes and mental illness. Well, in the United States, we have a huge problem. Uh, We have about... 400,000 people uh, a year um, who die um, from smoking-related illnesses, and about half of that number are people with a chronic and persistent mental illness. Many of them are are schizophrenic, and so there's very, very high rates of smoking among people with mental illness, and in particular, schizophrenics. About 90% of those diagnosed with schizophrenia uh, smoke cigarettes. And they're dying um, by their thousands. And so we have to do something about it. It's a, it's a real uh, tragedy. It's, it's an epidemic, actually. And uh, we now have a nicotine delivery device that people who uh, smoke uh, heavily, as the mentally ill do, can use to get nicotine without the harms of tobacco. So... I work with uh, people with uh, addictions to a, a wide array of drugs, nicotine being one of them, heroin, crack cocaine. And so now we have this revolutionary uh, nicotine delivery device that can help people um, stay alive, essentially, and get their nicotine in a, in a, in a harm reduction way. So um, I and many other people are so excited because now we have a tool that can really help people with mental illness who, as I said, uh, have very high rates of smoking. Well, a lot of people now, they uh, think that nicotine, if you uh, inhale nicotine, it's going to cause cancer. Is it the nicotine that causes cancer from cigarettes, or is it something else? Um, absolutely not. Um, it's, the, it's, the toba- it's what's in the tobacco, the tars, uh, the carcinogens, and tobacco are ignited when the cigarette uh, is lit. So nicotine itself actually, it's, it's kind of interesting when you kind of step back and think how nicotine has been so thoroughly demonized. And on the one hand, you can sort of understand it because we've always uh, had nicotine until maybe, um, you know, when, when we finally got other nicotine replacement therapies like gum and the patches. But prior to that, nicotine has always been delivered uh, through smoking uh, tobacco. And, of course, that's enormously problematic because uh, getting nicotine that way, then your risk for all kinds of diseases go way up. And so the association of nicotine always with tobacco, you can sort of understand. But we have to step back and look at nicotine as uh, a medicine because that's really what it is. And so the useful effects of nicotine are just, um, you know, amazing. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a stimulant, so it helps people um, with memory. It helps with concentration. It improves learning. It's also an anti-anxiety and an antidepressant in the sense that when you smoke, and many, many people will tell you this, their level of anxiety goes way, way down. So we need to begin to think about nicotine as a medicine that can actually help people, much like um, it's been demonized very much in the way that marijuana has been demonized, that it had no medicinal value, and we've really broken through uh, with marijuana to say, hold on a minute, 
Marijuana has many medicinal benefits, and so does nicotine. In fact, it's, it's really interesting. They're studying uh, the use of nicotine in a whole number of diseases now. Uh, Tourette syndrome, um, Parkinson's, they're looking at nicotine to manage pain, uh, and, and a whole um, number of uh, you know, health problems, uh, they're looking at, uh, they're using nicotine in studies. Um, Alzheimer's is another example because of memory deficits. So we need to stop demonizing nicotine and look at it as a medicine, as a way to help people. Is it addictive? Absolutely. No question about that. But as harm reductionists, we look at um, nicotine addiction, especially as delivered through uh, an electronic cigarette, which dramatically reduces the harm. Okay, that's an addiction, but it's an addiction that you can manage, that you can maintain that and dramatically lower uh, your, um, your risk factors for, for disease. Um, I think you'll agree with me, Ken, nicotine is here to stay. Um, people have been using it for many, many years. Um, there's some people going to use it their entire life, and, and, that's, and that's legitimate. If we can maintain people on nicotine through this new delivery device that dramatically reduces the harms, where's the problem? I think it's similar to, to methadone. We can maintain people on methadone. It reduces the harms of you know, if the alternative is using street heroin. So that's how we, we have to begin to think about nicotine, that there will be some people that will want to continue to use nicotine for all of the, the useful effects of nicotine that I, I talked about. And I think there will be many people with a mental illness who will want to continue to, to use nicotine for all of these, these benefits. Well, some people are going to wonder uh, why can't people use the nicotine gum or nicotine patch or one of these things that are manufactured by uh, pharmaceutical companies. So why do they need to, what is the advantage to these electronic cigarettes over those delivery methods? Well, that's a really important aspect of uh, electronic cigarettes. And that is the ritual around smoking is enormously powerful. People really like the ritual of putting something in their mouth. They like the tactile sensations of touching. Uh, people will tell you they like to touch cigarettes. They, the, the pack, they hold it. Um, you know, they tamp the cigarette down. And then, of course, there's the inhalation and the exhalation. And that is really, really uh, powerful for people. They really enjoy that. And when you think about like relaxation breathing, I talk about breathing in and breathing out, that's what smoking uh, does uh, for people. It, it relieves boredom, and so people like that part of it, so that's very important. But that ritual is what pe many, many people will tell you uh, why they're sticking with the electronic cigarettes. Unfortunately, with the other nicotine replacement therapies, the, uh, the Nicotrol, the inhaler, uh, the gums, and the patches, they eliminate that ritual. And so they have pretty high failure rates. And what we're seeing with the electronic cigarettes, because, of course, it's fairly obvious, the uh, electronic cigarette, it mimics what the cigarette does. People are sticking with it. And so you have to think about the ritual aspect of it. I mean, lots of drugs have rituals, right? Smoking, mm -hmm. that inhalation, exhalation, the, the tactile, the oral I mean, for some of us, it might be kind of hard to understand, like people like smoke, they like taking it into their lungs and blowing it out, but we know from lots of research that the ritual is very much a part of, of smoking, and to give that up is one of the things that people miss. With electronic cigarettes, you still, that, that ritual is intact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As an ex-smoker, well, I'm sort of an ex-smoker. I quit cigarettes. I have an occasional cigar. It's been a year since my last one. I keep waiting for the next one now. <laughs> so I said I could have up to once a week, but I've been too busy mm -hmm. all last year to have any. Uh, but basically, I consider myself an ex-smoker because I'm an ex-cigarette smoker. And I know one of the things, you know, with cigarettes is that you have a great deal of control over the rate of nicotine delivery. Um, if you're not getting enough, you smoke faster. If you're getting too much, you slow down. Um, 
in fact, it's it's completely automatic. And, you know, one of the interesting studies that uh, was done, you know, they they thought uh, filter cigarettes, low tired, low nicotine cigarettes would uh, um, be healthier for people, and they were actually worse because people were smoking more because they had to get their dose. You know, uh, they they had to control because the dose is very important, and the rate of dosing is very important to smokers. Uh, you know, I know this. So, the, I mean, the, the electronic cigarettes allow you to do that, too, and the gum, it does not. You're, t- you're just passive, and with the patch, it's even worse. Right, and some companies, they offer, you choose how precisely how much nicotine you want. So, if you want the top end, which is usually 24 milligrams, you can get cartridges that are 24 milligrams. And then it goes down from there, 16, 14, 10 and they even have zero uh, milligrams. Again, it related to, to the ritual. There are some people who will taper down, but they still want that ritual, uh, and they can get that and not have the nicotine. So you're right. With electronic cigarettes, you, you can choose how much nicotine you actually want to take in. So if you want to start at the top end, you can do that and work your way down. If you want to stop somewhere in the middle and just stabilize yourself there, you can do that. So there's lots of room to um, figure out exactly how much nicotine you, you personally need. And that's, that's one of the strengths, I think, of electronic cigarettes over uh, traditional you know, tobacco cigarettes. You don't actually know uh, how much you're getting, except you know, at one point, because of the tobacco papers, we knew, um, we found out eventually that the tobacco industry was actually putting more nicotine into uh, cigarettes so that people would become uh, addicted. They wanted to make sure that they had consumers so they uh, increased the amount of nicotine. With electronic cigarettes, we have much more control over the actual amount of nicotine. It's interesting, you know, because actually the safest cigarettes would have the the highest nicotine concentrations and the lowest tars. So, you know, and, and... Big tobacco oils gets attacked. They they made their more nicotine in their cigarettes. But it's actually, you know, relatively speaking, the more nicotine, the less tar you have. It's actually safer that way. When you reverse the equation and have more tar and less nicotine, then you have more carcinogens. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and yeah, with the electronic cigarettes, you can control your number of inhales per minute, and I think that's really important. That's what you do with the regular cigarettes too. Uh, are you a, have you ever been a smoker? No, I, I haven't. I experimented when I was in high school and I didn't like it. Uh, but my mother was a heavy smoker, three packs a day for almost her entire life. And two of my sisters uh, became addicted uh, to cigarettes and smoked for many, many years, but then subsequently quit. And my father was a cigar smoker. So I grew up with a lot of secondhand smoke in my home. And that's the other important thing, I think, about electronic cigarettes is that it doesn't have the carcinogens uh, in the vapor that uh, smoke clearly does. I mean, the secondhand, the dangers of secondhand smoke are well documented. We don't have that issue with electronic cigarettes. So that's another uh, huge benefit uh, to electronic cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, have researchers looked at uh, the effects of nicotine on schizophrenia and how, how exactly it works? Have they looked at the mechanism? Well, one of the, one of the things about uh, um, having a mental illness like uh, schizophrenia, there's, a, um, there's something that's unique uh, to, um, to those who have schizophrenia, and it's it's, it's what's called impaired uh, sensory gating. And, and essentially what that, what that means is the person with schizophrenia, they have trouble focusing on all events in, in the environment that are happening all at once, like the background sounds, maybe somebody's talking to them. Everything appear, can appear as, as important. Uh, and it's very difficult to distinguish what is happening in the environment. So... Uh, unfortunately, in this country, we have many people with mental illness who live out on the streets, and we see um, 
we see people with mental illness out on the streets regularly. And when you do, you can see often they look afraid or they, they think they're hearing voices or, you know, they're just acting in a way that we would perceive as strange. And, and I think what we, researchers think is it's the sense of impaired sensory gating that, that they have. You and I can walk down the street. We can distinguish sounds. Someone's talking to us or someone's talking behind us to, to other people. So this impaired sensory gating is something uh, that schizophrenics really, really uh, struggle with. And so when they smoke, it really tamps down the, uh, the sensory gating, all of that, that stuff, not being able to, to figure out what's going on in the environment. It really sort of dials that down. And so you can imagine how reinforcing that would be. I mean, who wants to walk around with that, with that problem? And that's why you'll see schizophrenics literally going end to end to end with cigarettes, like smoking them all the way down to the end, and then just what we call chain smoking. And researchers think part of it is, is, is due to this impaired sensory gating. So that's one of the reasons. But also some of the, the other effects that I mentioned, the anti-anxiety, anti-depressant effects, the ability to actually concentrate and focus on something. I mean, we've all had times in our lives where you just can't focus, but imagine if that was sort of like a baseline for you. And then you have a cigarette, and a lot of that is ameliorated. I mean, it's, 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 very, it's very reinforcing. And so we know that about nicotine, and so we need to find a way uh, to get electronic cigarettes into the hands of people who are living with a, a mental illness. And that's going to be a real challenge, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I've talked about myself uh, now and then. I think I mentioned it on the show here once or twice. You know, if we could, you know, if we could found a public charity for the purpose of getting electronic cigarettes to, uh, you know, schizophrenics or mentally mm-hmm. ill people, you know, it would be a great boon, but it would be a really hard charity to get going, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the other thing, it's, it's interesting when we look at the demographics in the United States of who actually continues to smoke cigarettes. So we have roughly almost 50, um, um, 50 million people who, who continue uh, to smoke in the United States. And when we look at who is smoking, it's interesting. It breaks down very much in terms of race and, and ethnicity. So 32% of smokers in the United States are American Indian or Native Alaskans. After that, 23% are black, 21% are white, and 15% are Hispanic. So it's people of color and people who have been oppressed and, and, and marginalized largely who continue to smoke. Then when, if we look at education uh, of those who continue to smoke in the United States, 46% of them um, have a GED diploma, 26% have no high school diploma, 23% are high school grads. So essentially, uh, people with less education are continuing to smoke. And then the last number I'll throw out there is economic status in smoking. And so we know that 30% of adults who live below the poverty line smoke, and 18% of adults who live at or above the poverty line smoke. So the poor smoke. Um, the less educated smoke and people of color and indigenous peoples in our country are the, the, have the highest rates of smoking. And so on that level, when you look at that, we have to do something. We have to um, help people who are being set up to become addicted to nicotine to find a way to get unaddicted or find a way um, to uh, ma- maintain that addiction uh, through electronic cigarettes and dramatically um, lowering the harms. And so that's one of the reasons that I'm concerned about taxing electronic cigarettes and taxing them to the point where you put them out of the reach, the financial reach of the people who need access to this product, this delivery, you know, nicotine delivery device the most. I mean, look what we've done with with tobacco. We've taxed it in New York, I think it's $13 a pack now. I don't want to see that happen to electronic cigarettes because, again, the people who need this product the most are the poorest. They're the ones who are at the poverty level or or below it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and there's another... The other thing with taxation is there's a certain optimal level of taxation because when the taxes get too high, 
what you get is bootlegging. And I've heard that there's a fair amount of cigarette bootlegging in New York City just because the taxes are so outrageous. I don't know what the, if there's any hard facts and figures on it. But, you know, it, mm-hmm. it seems like you always get this. When you, when you tax too much, all you do is drive it underground. Right. And in this instance, it means the certain deaths that, that will continue. Uh, people with mental illness, you know, we know about 200,000 of them die every year. We know that people with a chronic and persistent mental illness are poor in our country. And uh, if, we, if we aren't able to uh, get electronic cigarettes to this group of people, uh, they will continue to die from smoking-related illnesses. And it's really morally and ethically un- unacceptable. I mean, as you know, there's a, a huge debate uh, it has been going on in the U.S., actually globally, around electronic cigarettes. And uh, I, it really it feels like it's a, it's a drug panic. It's a, it's a, it's a drug uh, hysteria. Instead of embracing this new uh, nicotine delivery device, uh, there are a number of, of uh, anti, typically they're anti-tobacco organizations who are saying, no, we need to heavily regulate them, we need to tax them, we need to have all kinds of very strict regulations like uh, eventually were, were one uh, around tobacco for electronic cigarettes. And you know, the first thing I just want to say is like, let's not have a panic around electronic cigarettes. Let's just calm down, no hysteria, because we know when we have drug panics, uh, we don't get the correct science, right? We get the junk science, we get um, a lot of, um, you know, victim blaming and demonization of people. And uh, so I think that we, we, we have to sort of fight back against the drug panic and uh, really look at electronic cigarettes as a harm reduction way to help people who want to quit smoking because what uh, numerous surveys are showing is that people who have been uh, addicted to, to cigarettes you know, for decades, they're switching over to electronic cigarettes and then they're tapering off. I mean, there's so many stories of, of people saying, this was the thing that helped me. And then there's probably a fair amount of people that are going to continue to use them. We have to, as harm reductionists, we have to be in the forefront of this, of this movement and fight back against the, the scare tactics that people are, are using to say, you know, electronic cigarettes, they're, they're dangerous. We just don't know enough about them. In fact, we do. I mean, they've been around for six, seven years. The Italians have done studies. The Japanese have done studies. Um, we're, they're doing some in the U.S. And so far, they have not found any major um, risks uh, associated with electronic cigarettes. Now, that isn't to say there are none, because we know with nicotine that um, when you take nicotine in, it can transiently increase your heart rate and your blood pressure, transiently meaning temporarily. Caffeine does that, by the way. There's other drugs that do that. So there are some risks, as with any drug, right? There's no drug that doesn't have a, a side effect that could hurt somebody. Um, but we have to see this for the breakthrough that, that it really is. And my concern is that, again, the demonization of nicotine because it's always been associated with tobacco. And so we have to heavily regulate it. And we have to, um, you know, um, the children, I mean, that's the other big um, issue, right, is, is the children and mm-hmm. them taking up um, smoking um, or vaping, as we call it, with electronic cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing um, one thing we see is you know big pharmacy the pharmaceutical companies you know they have no trouble at all calling their nicotine delivery devices medications they are happy to call nicotine gum a medicine and they want to say it's a medicine it's not a drug well it mm-hmm. a drug and a medicine are synonyms for each other to begin with um, right. But, you know, they're, they're inhalers, they're gums, they're patches. They're all nicotine delivery devices. They're just, they're not very successful nicotine delivery devices. But I see the big pharmacy is, is having, uh, they don't want the competition to make any money because it's going to cut into their profits. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because when you compare nicotine uh, products, you know, the nicotine inhaler, for example, um, the nicotine inhaler has uh, essentially the same ingredients uh, that the electronic cigarette does. And in particular, um, we're hearing a lot more now about propylene glycol and glycerol and vegetable glycerin. And uh, these three um, you know, chemicals are in other nicotine replacement um, therapies. They're in the patch, they're in the uh, nicotrol uh, inhaler, and they're, they're uh, chemicals that are regulated by the FDA. Not only are they in the nicotine replacement uh, products, but they're in other food. They're in food that we eat. So these are um, essentially um, in, 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 the, in all, all nicotine replacement products. So those chemicals in particular, have ra- they're raising some concern because unlike although the nicotrol inhaler, you do inhale, right? Um, obviously with the past you don't. One of the concerns around the electronic cigarette is the vapor. So you're taking in this vapor and you're taking in these chemicals um, into your lungs. And so there is legitimate concern about the long-term use of that. And we do need studies uh, uh, you know, longitudinally um, that, you know, go way out so that, that we know. Um, so I, I'm totally uh, in favor of that. But where I think I part company with some of the, um, the, the anti-electronic um, cigarette zealots is that they want to wait until all the evidence is in, all the science is in. And I don't feel that we can wait because if you have 400,000 people a year dying in your country from smoking-related illnesses and you have a way that you know can lower that death toll, ethically for me, you have to do that. And we have to get the science and, and, and look at that critically. And it has to be science that is not funded by the Tobacco Institute, you know, I mean, the, the tobacco companies, because that's not always reliable. We need the government to do studies. We need independent researchers, you know, to do uh, this, this science. But we simply cannot wait until all of the, of the, uh, the, the scientific evidence is in, because too many people are dying. And not just mm-hmm. in the United States, globally. I mean, it's an epidemic. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when we approve medications, we don't wait till all science is in. Never. Um, you know, this is, and that's why a number of them get recalled later. Um, you know, you can't trust anybody to do their own research. Uh, pharmaceutical companies have done some really underhanded research on psych medications, antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole other topic, but, you know, you can't run five randomized clinical trials and then throw out the four that don't get good results and just keep the one that gets good results. That's the illegitimate science. Everybody that's got basic scientific training knows that, but they've done that in the past to get their medications mm-hmm. approved. I mean, I mean uh, I'm not... You know, I'm going to say this because I've said it a few times, you know, I have more trust in big tobacco today than I do in big pharma, and that's because <laughs> big tobacco has everybody on their goddamn back, and if they have to tell mm-hmm. the truth now. They don't have a choice. You know, they used to be much bigger liars than anybody else, but they don't have that option mm-hmm. anymore. <laughs> right, and it's important uh, that the FDA last month uh, finally weighed in on electronic cigarettes. And so they're going to be uh, requiring producers of uh, e-cigarettes to register with the FDA, uh, to provide the agency with detailed accounting of their products ingredients, and disclose the manufacturing process and and the scientific data. And I'm I'm actually in favor of that. I mean, this is... uh, it is a medication, in my view, and it is addictive, even though it's not, um, I'm not using that in a, in a demonizing way because um, it, you know, all addiction is not the same, and we know that, again, nicotine is delivered through this device, um, really lowers the harms, but it is addictive, and in general, people don't want to be addicted to things. And um, they're going to have to put that on the product, that, that nicotine uh, is, is addictive. And so I think that that's important. I, I don't want the FDA um, to be um, 
you know, over-regulate to the point where it's, it's a difficult product um, for people to access. But with any um, with any drug, I think you need some kind of oversight. I don't I don't trust um, corporate America because their bottom line is profit, right? That's all they're mm-hmm, interested mm-hmm. in, and that's what the tobacco industry they were able to. Um, I mean, they're, they've been one of the most profitable uh, corporations on on the planet, and. You know, um, R.J. Reynolds, Lori Lard, Altria, the, the big uh, uh, tobacco companies, they're moving into the electronic uh, cigarette um, market. No surprise there. They know the f- where the future is, and they want to control the market because they know it's going to be very profitable, that people don't want to die from smoking tobacco, and millions <laughs> more people are going to... Um, uh, tra- transition over, and so they're already in the market. They're going to continue to, to um, dominate the market, I think. And so they need they need to be regulated. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious about that. Um, when I was researching electronic cigarettes, it was about four or five years ago before uh, they were very popular. And well. China was very big on the manufacturer at that point in time. And I wonder if that has shifted. Is, it, are the, is China still the majority manufacturer, or who's, who's involved now in the game? Um, China is still a major player uh, in, in the game. Uh, there's no uh, question about that. Uh, it's partly because it was invented there, uh, partly because... Uh, you know, the, to manufacture them, it's uh, less costly there. They have lower labor costs. But increasingly, uh, production is moving into uh, the United States where they're assembling um, certain parts of the, uh, of the electronic cigarette. But, for example, I know that the, the battery that is in the electronic cigarette, that, that component is definitely coming um, from, um, from China. At some point, would they be manufactured in the United States? If it's, if it's profitable to do that, the corporations will absolutely do it. The other thing that's interesting, I, I think, about uh, electronic cigarettes is just the nicotine itself. So tobacco, you know, the plant, has the most uh, nicotine that can be um, extracted. But there's actually other things that have nicotine in it, and, People might not know this, but uh, eggplant has nicotine in it. Potatoes have uh, nicotine in them. But the problem is they haven't been able to, they don't have enough nicotine so that it makes it worth extracting it from, from these, um, these vegetables. And it's really the tobacco plant that has the most nicotine in it. And so it's interesting because the FDA is saying that electronic cigarettes are, are, it's a tobacco product. But that's actually not true because if they're just using the nicotine from the plant, not the other plant materials, which is what's in traditional uh, cigarettes. So this is, so I guess the point I'm trying to make is I think they're going to try to find, create analogs so that they don't even have to get nicotine from plants anymore, that they, they find mm-hmm. a way in the lab you know, to, you know, get these nicotine molecules or whatever, and they just do it chemically, and they don't use the plant anymore. I think this is an industry, well, they call it the sort of wild, wild west right now because there really aren't Mm -hmm. many uh, regulations. But I think it's an industry that's in flux. I think it's going to change a lot. There's going to be a lot of innovations um, to make them more, uh, you know, some people feel that the, the tactile you know, they're metal, they don't like that. I think they're, um, they're going to experiment with, with new materials. They're, gonna, uh, they're going to have another complaint is the batteries don't last long enough. You have to recharge. That's going to change. They're going to stay charged much longer. So it's an it's a industry that is going to be full of, of innovation. That's what I see for the future. And I see China being uh, a part of that because they're one of the large, they have, you know, a huge um, industry that is, is committed uh, to producing uh, uh, electronic electronic cigarettes. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the nicotine and potatoes, that must be in the leaves and not the potato, the edible part themselves. Because uh, I know potato leaves are poisonous, me being a farm boy. <laughs> you can't eat potato leaves, they'll kill you. Um, so that, that must be where they are, and you throw those away. I wonder if that's a, if that's a cheap source to extract from. I love potatoes, and I don't know if it's because I'm Irish, but I love <laughs> potatoes. And any way that you cook them, I love them. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say I wanted to say something about um, another piece of what I consider the the hysteria, and that is uh, the children. So there's been a number of articles, uh, particularly in the New York Times. The New York Times is all over. Uh, this issue. It seems like they have an article almost every week. They had a, you know, uh, an opi- opinion pieces, you know, debates about it. And I think it's really interesting because when it comes to drugs, uh, one of the ways to shut down any kind of rational discussion is to say, well, the children. You know, we have to keep uh, <laughs> drugs mm-hmm, away mm-hmm. from the children. Um, and First of all, we know that young people experiment with all kinds of drugs. Um, Drugs are here to stay. Young people are going to experiment with drugs. And so the best thing we can do is talk honestly about uh, nicotine and and what it it does. Um, um, There's been a number of studies that are saying, well, more and more young people are trying them, and then they're moving on to regular cigarettes. That's that's actually not true. Um, Another part of the sort of, you know, fear, fear fear-mongering centers around uh, the fact that many electronic cigarettes are flavored. So they could be cherry, they could be vanilla. um, I mean, they get really, you know, chocolate, uh, some caramel, cafe, Apple, you know, you name it. I mean, very, um, you know, marketing the nicotine cartridges and nicotine liquid in all kinds of flavors. You know, this idea, there was a report uh, put that was that just sort of stated that the uh, companies use the flavorings to convince young people to start using their product. There's actually no, no studies that show that. There's no, um, you know, the National uh, Youth Tobacco Study you know, this is a, mm-hmm. where, where it said this. It's, there's, no, there's no evidence to show that flavoring things is an automatic that young people will, will pick it up. Because the reality is adults actually like flavorings. Uh, people that I mm-hmm. know that use them, really, you know, they might have a vanilla um, a set of, of flavored and then just regular tobacco. But this is the big thing that has been, been used to say, well, wait a minute, hold on. You know, we can't, we can't have electronic cigarettes on the market because of the flavorings in young people, and then they'll, they'll get hooked. And um, so I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, I know parents are always concerned when their kids experiment with drugs. And we don't want young people to become uh, addicted to nicotine. That isn't the way we want young people to start out their lives. But we also have to be pragmatic that if they're going to pick up nicotine, is it better for them to pick up an electronic cigarette or a camel or Marlboro? So that's where the harm reduction piece is really important. If, if, if young people, if teenagers are going to experiment with nicotine, which would you rather have your child pick up, a cherry-flavored electronic cigarette or a menthol uh, cool? cigarette. So I just wanted mm-hmm. to mention that because I feel that that's kind of one of the leading edges and it always is when it comes to drugs is, is what about what about the kids? You know, we have to keep them safe. Well, you, we were talking about the FDA regulations coming in uh, earlier in the show and uh, well, I do agree and I'm sure you agree too that there, there should be age limitations for buying electronic cigarettes. Yes. I, I agree with that, and the FDA has said 18 uh, is the age um, that, um, that that and, and that's what it is for alcohol. And actually, in some uh, states, they've attempted to alcohol, raise uh, the age of smoking. Yeah, that's the age for regular cigarettes, isn't it? 18. You said it's alcohol, 18. but that's 21. Alcohol is 21. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Um, right. And regular cigarettes are 18. Is that uh, is but that a federal law they're trying to now? raise it in some states. In New York, actually, they want to raise the age um, that you can smoke to 21. That was one of the last things Bloomberg uh, proposed on, on his way out is to increase, um, increase it to 21. Yeah, Bloomberg, and he, you can't buy two-liter soda bottles either. Um, man, I, I'm not happy with these regulations, and everybody that knows me can tell I hate soda pop. I don't drink stuff. And about once a year I have a root beer, and that's it. The, the other stuff is nasty. It's carbonated sugar water. I think it's disgusting. But, you know, if I want to buy two liters of disgusting carbonated sugar water, that's my business. It's not Bloomberg's <laughs> business. If I want to buy a flavored BD cigarette, it's not the federal government's business. As you know, those are outlawed mm-hmm. now. Um, mm-hmm. One of the worst things they did that really bugged me is, you know, the Swedish snus, uh, the oral tobacco, this particular type of Swedish snus was found non-carcinogenic. It was very, mm-hmm. you know, the Swedish man had really low rates of uh, cancer because they all got off cigarettes and were doing snus. And he used to be able to buy it through the mail, and our federal government, that's one of the things with the new tobacco laws they did, you couldn't buy that through the mail. So they were preventing people from using, you know, the safer products and forcing them to use the more dangerous ones. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think part of that goes back to nicotine has been so demonized, um, and it's only relatively recently that we've begun to look at nicotine in a different way, much like marijuana. I think there's a lot of um, crossover between these, these two drugs, that we have to look at nicotine's useful, um, the benefits of it, because there are really enormous benefits. I mean, if you could use nicotine as delivered through an electronic cigarette to manage your anxiety, wouldn't that be better than some of the, prescription medications that we know have very serious side effects. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what about using an electronic cigarette to manage your anxiety or your depression? We know many of these psychotropic medications, these SSRIs, have intolerable and dangerous side effects, which um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. nicotine has a few, but not anything compared to some of these prescription medications that people who have anxiety and depression, bipolar, etc., uh, take. Often they're on them for years, if not for life. What about using nicotine and to see if that could uh, help to manage the anxiety or the depression instead of these prescribed medications? I think it's important mm-hmm. that we look at it uh, in that way. There's Many people that I've worked with over the years, and, and the more that I, I've looked into this issue and researched it, that's been their anti-anxiety medication, the nicotine. Unfortunately, delivered through the, the, the cancer-causing cigarette, um, now the scene is different. And I thought about how marijuana, the same thing, that for years people have been using marijuana to medicate um, against anxiety and depression. And fortunately, mm-hmm. we're uh, uh, in a moment in history where marijuana is being legalized for recreational use and medicinal marijuana is available in 20-plus states. Now, we're recognizing that this is a medicine, and I'm really hoping nicotine, we're able to do that with nicotine uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we should also look at nicotine as a maintenance drug, not just a drug to taper and quit with, which is how the big pharmaceutical companies have been selling their nicotine products forever. You you start the gum, but you're supposed to use it for however many weeks and reduce your amounts or reduce down to the weaker gum, and then mm-hmm. you're supposed to be quit. And, you know, and they always want to parade this in six months. They have uh, twice as good a success rate or whatever. But then you look at the long-term studies, and they have, uh, you know, in two years, at least the heavy smokers have a much greater relapse rate <laughs> that quit with the gum than the ones who just quit on their own. So, you know, using it as a quit tool, well, you know, selling it as just exclusively a quit tool is not, is not the way to go. Um, you know, there should be room for nicotine maintenance, whether you, you're uh, 
source of nicotine. Your delivery system is gum, patch, uh, mm-hmm. inhaler, lozenges, or electronic cigarettes. They're all um, you know ways to do maintenance, and maintenance might be the way to go. Or at least for a lot of people, they need to have maintenance for a while, maybe several years of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, unfortunately, we live in a, in a country that uh, it's, you know, it's, it's black and white. Addiction is bad. You have to stop everything. Addiction is bad. And why is addiction bad? Just because it's, it's bad. It's a circular logic. Some drugs are okay to use on a maintenance basis uh, for your entire life. They happen to be prescription medications, blood pressure medication. Why is that okay? Uh, Insulin. uh, Is that a Mm -hmm. maintenance? Why don't you get off the insulin? We only say that uh, with with certain drugs, the ones that are really uh, demonized. And, you know, these these anti-electronic cigarette zealots, that's that's, that's a piece that they always bring up. They're so hyper-concerned that there's some people who would, in fact, not use e-cigarettes to quit. I mean, they're, they're, they're outraged that someone would continue to, to vape and not give it up completely. It's, again, it's just all or nothing, you're dirty or you're clean. And we have to stop thinking that way because the reality is there are some people who will need to stay on nicotine for a long time, and there should be no stigma attached to that. I happen to take a medication for a health condition that I have. I'm going to take it for the rest of my life. There's no stigma related to my medication. There should not be any stigma uh, related uh, to nicotine. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you don't have any will. Maybe that's just what you need to help you manage um, your, your life. Uh, I think the, the perfect analogy is coffee. I mean, can anybody imagine not starting their day with some type of caffeine beverage, whether it's tea, coffee, a latte, Coca-Cola, uh, um, Red Bull. <laughs> and yet we don't see the same kind of language. We don't see the same kind of stigma around that. But that, in fact, caffeine addiction is real, right? Millions of mm-hmm. us have it. We live our lives. Um, you know, the, the harms are minimal. And so we have to look at nicotine in the same way, that people, as you said, they will want to maintain their use of it. There's nothing wrong with that. Get over it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's my confirmed belief, <clears throat> the majority of psychiatrists have caffeine addiction, and that's why they removed caffeine from the DSM, because they refused to give up their caffeine addiction. Because anybody that looks at the scientific facts knows that you know, caffeine is highly addictive. You know, you try and stop that, you get headaches, you feel uh, nasty. Um, I'm very addicted to caffeine myself. It's the, uh, I think it's the only thing I'm currently addicted to that is chemical. You know, mm-hmm. I'm addicted to streaming movies on uh, Netflix too, but uh, that's a process addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like and, to. Uh, and, you know, but, and then to think about how how that how would that then play out? Because as I said earlier, kind of at the top of the show, they're using. Uh, nicotine in, uh, in studies with people who have, you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, uh, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, pain, obesity, right? One of the other benefits of nicotine is it's an appetite suppressant. So if, you know, they continue to do these studies and they see that nicotine is a real benefit in managing uh, these chronic uh, um, illnesses, that might help to shift uh, the way people think about nicotine. If you have one of these, you know, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, and you're using nicotine, uh, are you an addict? Um, no, probably not. If you're using it to maintain um, you know, or to keep the symptoms of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's at bay, uh, that's, not, that's not, not problematic. That's a therapeutic use of nicotine. So that, that might be another way to actually break down uh, this stigma and demonization of nicotine um, when it becomes normalized, you know, the pharmacological use of nicotine becomes normalized in treating these um, chronic, chronic uh, diseases that 
um, by the way, millions of people um, have Alzheimer's, um, schizophrenia, you know, depression and anxiety. We're talking about millions of people who can potentially benefit from the therapeutic use of nicotine. And uh, we can just hope that that will begin to break down some of the, the stigma around uh, using nicotine as a medication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a huge cohort study, I think it came out of Hong Kong or somewhere in China, uh, where they looked at smokers, uh, you know, uh, over their lifetime. And smokers, uh, smokers versus non-smokers, the smokers were far less likely to develop Alzheimer's than the non-smokers. So it's a preventative. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the reason right. to start smoking exactly or even to start using nicotine in a less dangerous way. But it, it, that's a study result mm-hmm. that came out. Right. And I, I want to go back because I really feel like when you talk about preventing nicotine addiction or, or any addiction, actually, but tonight we're talking about nicotine, you really have to look at the social determinants of, of addiction. We can't just look at the brain. I know I know there are people like Norvalco and other people at night, they just love to focus on the brain, but for me, I'm over that. I want to look at the social determinants um, of addiction. And so if you do that, then you have to do things differently. So if you're concerned about young people starting to smoke, you have to look at poverty. Because we know that it's poor people, predominantly, at least in the United States, who smoke. So if you Mm -hmm. really are serious about preventing nicotine addiction, you lift people out of poverty. Poverty Living in poverty is enormously stressful, anxiety-producing, and nicotine helps with that instantly, right? Nicotine gets into mm-hmm. the system in seven seconds. It's a, it's a very quick delivery device. So if you're really serious about preventing nicotine addiction, we can't have 16 million children in the United States living in poverty. That has to change. Similarly, if you're concerned about prevention, you have to educate people because we know the studies tell us over and over and over again, the more education you have, the lower the rates of smoking. So we have a massive educational crisis, you know, a crisis in education in our country. If we address that and we have, more educate, have a more educated populace, they're not going to turn to smoking. We know that from the studies, right? We know mm-hmm. that the the majority of people have actually quit smoking. The large demographic are people who are wealthier and people who have um, advanced education. So if we can raise the level of education, the quality of education, that's another preventive measure um, um, to look at. So when they talk about the children, the children, okay, I hear that, and you want to prevent addiction because nobody wants their child to be addicted. That's, that's obvious. These are two huge things as a country that we could do that would make a huge impact versus, I'm sure you've seen these ads, Ken, the, the scare tactics, you know, the, the guy who doesn't have a voice box, you know, the woman who has mm-hmm. the amputated fingers, the, the <laughs> promotional photos on the train. I'm sorry that you can't scare kids on smoking. Um, we didn't do it with drugs, um, other drugs. We're not going to do it with nicotine. Uh, so I just wanted, wanted to add that because I do believe in prevention and I don't want people to become addicted to substances. Uh, and there is a way to do that, and that is if you look at the social determinants that actually uh, drive people to, to become addicted. You know, I, I, I do um, a, a nicotine uh, addiction and a harm reduction support group and I was just stunned that when I started doing it, what, one of the first questions I asked my clients is, at what age did you start smoking and what was going on in your life? And so one thing we do know from many studies is the people who tend to get chronically and persistently addicted to nicotine, they start when they're very young. I'm talking 10, 11, 12, 13. Those are the ones that go on to become lifelong smokers. Those um, are the people that the um, tobacco industry loves. And to a person, they told me that uh, they lived in poverty and they had um, suffered, survived uh, trauma, physical abuse, Mm -hmm. sexual abuse, verbal abuse. And they turned to nicotine, surprise, surprise, because it's a legal drug, they turned to cigarettes to help them cope with trauma. To a person, um, I, I was told that. And so we have to look at that. We have to look at the real um, 
people's real lives and why they're uh, beginning to smoke. Now, of course, that's not true for everybody, right? Some people take up mm-hmm. smoking for other reasons, but there's a huge group of people that their smoking started because of trauma, early childhood trauma in their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and if we look across other drugs too, you know, rates of addiction are definitely very strongly correlated with those two factors, poverty and trauma, childhood trauma. It doesn't matter if you're looking at heroin, cocaine, cigarettes, nicotine. And one of the great studies that was done uh, many years ago was called Rat Park uh, by Bruce Alexander, and we had him on the show like three years ago and to talk about Rat Park. But, you know, when you put these rats in these cages, these Skinner boxes, where they have absolutely nothing to do but push a lever mm-hmm. to get their drug, guess what? They get addicted. You put them in a naturalistic setting where they have unlimited access to opiates or whatever, uh, but they also can run around, play, have sex with their mates, uh, you know, do the nice rat things that rats like to do. They don't get addicted. They're not very interested in the drugs. When people have decent environments, if you eliminate poverty, eliminate childhood trauma, uh, you reduce the chances of addiction. And, you know, you can talk about there's a difference between addiction and dependence, too, because, you know, dependence, you can get uh, dependent on a drug, but the addiction is kind of a different animal where you're, well, it's like severe versus less severe. I'm not going to go there. Um, but, you know, but our government doesn't want to reduce the difference, uh, you know, the inequalities in income between people. You know, uh, the American people, uh, the rich ones like to lord it over the poor ones. But, you know, until we get these social changes, you know, we're not going to really make a dent in addiction. That's my opinion. Right. I mean, so, you know, we're the 99% and there's the 1%, and it's all about profit. And the tobacco industry, I think, is probably the most nefarious example of how profit kills. And it's an industry that, when you think about it, they kill their customers with their product, and so they continually have to get more consumers addicted to their product because they're killing their, their, their customers, and so they have to replace them so they continue to make profit. And I want to add, because it's, it's real easy to villainize you know, R.J. Reynolds and the other tobacco companies, but the only reason they were able to get away with, I mean, what can only be said as a crime against humanity, right, is because of government complicity. Over the decades, uh, they were able to successfully buy off Congress, uh, individual uh, senators, uh, you know, they call them, you know, in the the tobacco country. uh, They owned um, these politicians, and they consistently voted um, to not regulate, uh, to soften regulation. They allowed the tobacco companies to continue lying about their products, So no corporation can do what the tobacco industry did without the complicity of the people in power in society, and in particular, the government. And if you read, you know, any of the tobacco papers or any of the, there's so many great books about how the tobacco industry was able to, you know, decade after decade after decade, you know, sell this product that kills, you see the collusion of government at every level, at every stage of the fight on, on the part of the public health officials, going up against politicians who were in the pockets, taking lots of money. Uh, the tobacco industry, surprise, surprise, uh, gives a lot of uh, campaign contributions to the senators uh, and representatives who are going to represent their interests. And so we have to look at that as well. It isn't just that they're horrible corporations. Yes, they are, but there are a whole layer of, of people in government that allowed this to go on for year after year after year, and they're complicit in this too. Mm-hmm. Well, we are running out of time. So uh, what final words would you like to leave us with tonight? I'm sorry, say that again? I said, we are running out of time. What final words would you like to leave us with tonight? Electronic cigarettes 
are going to change the face of nicotine addiction. It is going to dramatically lower the rates of smoking-related deaths. That is huge. More people are going to live. Um, they're going to have um, an enjoyable life. They're going to um, see their children grow up. Um, and we have to make sure that electronic cigarettes are not just available for the wealthy or the middle class. We have to make sure that this nicotine delivery device is affordable for people who don't have a lot of money. And we have to uh, make sure that we are able to get electronic cigarettes to people who are living with a chronic and persistent mental illness because we know that they have very high rates of smoking and consequently very high rates of death. 200,000 people with a mental illness who smoke die every year. So we have to make sure that we get this revolutionary, life-changing nicotine delivery device into the hands of the people who need it the most. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Helen Redmond. Thank you. And everybody, we'll see you all next week with the next show. So thank you, everyone, and good night.